think there's so many different ways of being a lawyer, which is why I've stayed with it, right? So there's so many women who leave law, so many underrepresented people who leave law, and it just breaks my heart. And they're leaving law because law can be very alienating and very hostile, especially to women, especially to anybody who looks different, sounds different, moves different. Like, I'm not asking people to be lambs to the slaughter. Like, if law is hurting you and it's tearing you apart, okay, finally. But there's actually still a lot of ways to be a lawyer. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan, and I'm joined again by Robin. Hey, Robin. Hey, Megan. How are you? Good. Welcome back. So glad you decided to join me for another podcast. You're going to become a regular now. It's too much fun not to. Yeah. And I swear, everyone, I'm not forcing Robin to do it. She really does. She likes it. I do. (laughs) Well, today we are in for a fun one. Uh, We're joined by Lenore Marquis. I came across Lenore on LinkedIn. You know, I just started noticing her posts and she gets really personal and vulnerable. And it's not the typical content um, that we see a lot on LinkedIn. It's I don't want to say it's unprofessional because it's not unprofessional, but she just shows a lot of who she is and it's very raw and opening. So, you know, I, I reached out to her and I was like, you seem like just someone I really want to talk to. And thankfully she wants to talk to, <laughs> she wants to talk to us too. So with that, let's bring her in. Good morning, Lenore. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest. How are you today? I'm doing well. Uh, good morning to you as well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you um and for for our listeners and viewers who are tuning in i i want to preface that i i i reached out to you because i saw a lot of your posts on linkedin and i just find what you're putting out there so engaging because it's it's very personal and i'm like i like her i want to talk to her (laughs) (laughs) and so i was like lenore can i talk to you (laughs) so you stalked me basically but yes but you seem like a nice stalker so i was like sure yeah, I, I am a nice stalker. I <laughs> I guess you but it does sound a little creepy when you call me the stalker. I, I admire you. <laughs> From afar. Yes, no. Um yeah, I think I do get pretty personal on LinkedIn. So uh and and that is intentional, but I do think it leads to um really quick connections with people, which which is nice because then we can get past sort of the um the, the small talk and the banter, which I'm not even particularly good at. I'm good at having big conversations. So uh, for me, LinkedIn is kind of that icebreaker. All right, you already know me. I already told you my entire life story. Now let's talk about you know yeah. <laughs> something big, something important. But in reality, I think now, like it makes me have more questions about your life story, <laughs> which, which, we might get to today, but I, I do want, I do want, before we get into like the meat of everything, I do want to mention this because the one post that really, one of the posts that really stood out to me because I laughed was, and I talked to you about it too, was we, you had posted about going through the airport with your, your daughter's American girl doll head hanging out of your bag. Yes. And I loved it because I remember at, there was a time a few years ago that my, my daughters took their American girl dolls to like wherever we were going and their heads were sticking out of their bags and they're like, and, and they had it facing the wrong way. So the head was toward the ground. So the hair just dragged <laughs> through the airport, but it really resonated with me. Yeah. Well, so, I, and I didn't have the benefit of traveling with children. 
So it's just, you know, me, 40 something year old, uh, you know, soccer mom lawyer, uh, but with a doll in my backpack. No, no visible children traveling alone with her doll, you know, and uh, it was a doll from my, it was actually my little sister's doll in her childhood, but still it's a doll from like 20, 30 years ago. Right. So it was very uh, possible, I think, to people watching me that maybe this was my doll and like just that me and my doll had been together for 30 years traveling the world, you know, me and me and my Molly doll, I think it was a mom. There was intense debate on LinkedIn as to whether it was Samantha Molly or a lookalike <laughs> doll. Um, so that, that, that definitely went viral in a way I didn't expect just in terms of analyzing which American girl doll I had in my backpack. But um, yeah, I mean, that was, I was coming back from helping my mom clean out her house and move. So there were all these things we were making, just very fast decisions about keep, throw away, move with my mom, what do we do with this? Um, and one of the things I did was I decided to take one of my little sister's old dolls with me and give it to my daughter. So I put her in my backpack, but the backpack wouldn't close. And, you know, I didn't want to put her feet out. So her little head was out and it just, it was just the exact right angle with like just her eyes peering over. And I was like, I, I look like the creepiest person ever, but this is what's happening. <laughs> it may have been creepier though, if the feet were hanging out, because people may have thought it was an actual like child. <laughs> People did. People did. In the security line, this this older gentleman, he, um, you know, you're getting all your stuff and you don't expect to interact with another human. And this old guy just like hits me on the side and is like, I thought there was a baby. I was like, it's not a baby. I wouldn't have put it through the x-ray machine. But yeah, it just it was hilarious. I had never had that much interaction with, um, you know, fellow airline passengers. <laughs> and then so one of the airport workers took a picture of me. I was like, where is this going? <laughs> I mean, are you supposed to do that? I mean, I'm sure they get a lot of um, interesting travelers, but they're probably not supposed to take pictures of us. So, probably not. So, <laughs> so I'm probably up on some weird, you know, I don't know. I don't know where it is. It, I put it on the internet, but I feel like it's also somewhere else on the internet that I don't know about posted by this, uh, you know, airport. Employee. Yeah. Like the Homeland Security database. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out for this woman. She has a doll in her back. Well, so I couldn't zip that. You wanted to know all about this. I couldn't zip the back because, you know, their hair is yeah. so fragile. And so like you were saying, dragging so gent, I didn't want to like zip it and catch the hair and but so anyway <laughs> yeah I I've lived it except you know except my daughter didn't care about how fragile the hair was she's like we're gonna sweep the floor we're gonna help yeah. help Tampa Tampa airport clean <laughs> <laughs> so but anyway so I ask this of a of pretty much everyone who co comes on you you are a lawyer by trade um you know, but we all have different paths on what, how and why we ended up to go to law school. Like I was very accidental. Um, actually, it's a, pro a theme. Most people were pretty accidental. But what was your <laughs> what was your path? Like, was it something that you wanted to do or, you know, you just kind of fell into because you didn't know what else to do? Uh, uh, worse than all of that, my parents were lawyers. <laughs> 
So, um, you know, there's some movie line about, you know, lawyers breeding more lawyers. And, and that's basically what happened. My parent, so I was born in law school. Um, <laughs> I was a little worried I would die in law school, but that didn't happen. But I was born in law school. Both my, my parents met in law school. Uh, my mom never practiced, but my dad did. My dad was a criminal defense attorney. So I grew up in the world of law. I literally cannot remember a time when I didn't know what a client was, which I know is in, that shouldn't be like your third word, but it kind of was. Uh, we always had um, clients over, <laughs> interacting with clients. I mean, kind of a, you know, criminal defense is a very bizarre practice. Mm -hmm. And why your whole family would get involved, I can't really, <laughs> you know, explain. But um, it, it is one of those practices where, uh, you know, I don't know, I feel like the whole family does kind of, <laughs> does kind of end up knowing all the cases and the clients and that type of thing. So, so I grew up with it. I tried to avoid it. I really did. Um, I wasn't going to do it. And then I did it. I did not do criminal defense. I have a sister who does do criminal defense. So she just couldn't, I mean, you couldn't escape it. Um, but so yeah, it's hereditary. <laughs> Unfortunately, I inherited it. it um, and not in sort of a, you know, people talk about being a first gen lawyer or whatever. I, I did not inherit the glamorous sort of big law legacy of, you know, sort of the white shoe country club, whatever. Um, I, I'm descended from uh, <laughs> sort of bare knuckles street fighter lawyers, but um, yeah. So, so unfortunately I inherited it. <laughs> it was in my DNA or, or uh, something. So that's how I, I ended up a lawyer. I mean, think about first year, right? Like first year law school, you were able to go through those books and understand what they were talking about while the rest of us were sitting there with the sticky notes, you know, for every word that they were trying to define. No, I think actually I just had to throw out everything I already knew because it was so different, right? Um, law school is all about like teaching you how to think and whatever. It's very different from, I had already seen the, the yellow legal pads and the and the files and the you know have to be in court this or that and um you know my dad was very much a trial attorney so every week he was in trials uh, that's not the kind of law they teach you how to practice in law school at least not in the uh the fancier law schools <laughs> that is not what they think they're doing they're not teaching it like um you know, like auto repair school, <laughs> you know, they're not, it's not practical in the slightest. So I just, I think I had to um, put aside what I knew about actual lawyering <laughs> to learn law. <laughs> um, and, and even in funny little ways, like I grew up hearing the word um, affidavit, but I thought it was after David. So in my head, like people were signing after David's just because that was how I learned it or didn't learn it as a kid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while you were in law school, though, like you went in, did you go in thinking like you absolutely did not want to do what your father did? Definitely. I didn't want to do anything. Honestly, I didn't want to do anything emotional. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do family. I didn't want to do criminal. 
while I was in law school, um, I did a lot of uh, immigration work. That's also incredibly emotional. Yeah. It's great work, but it's also so emotional. Um, I knew I didn't want to do any of that. Um, I was much more oriented towards uh, commercial disputes, like people fighting over money. Okay, I'll do that. Um, the psychological toll that criminal defense puts on people is insane. <laughs> it really is. I mean, or any of those practice areas where um, life or death or so related to people's mental health or, I mean, it's just, it's a lot. I knew that. I already knew myself. I knew I couldn't give that much to my job. Um, I couldn't, uh, my mental health couldn't rise and fall on the outcome of every single case in that way. Yeah. But it was good that you had enough self-awareness to realize that early. Cause I think a lot of people would be like, well, but I, I like it, it's familiar in a way. So sometimes familiar is so much easier to, to do than the unfamiliar. Um, but you know, but you also lived through the emotional aspect of it and also something with criminals too is like I, I don't know there is a security factor to that too like if you have clients over to your home and say their trial doesn't work out how they want like now this person knows where you live like there's a, a security <laughs> yeah. factor to this <laughs> no no there's definitely there's well I mean and it's just so yeah I mean <laughs> there's victims on both sides you know, every time. And it just was not, I, I just, you know, I so admire people who do that work. I can't do that work. Not for me, not for me personally. Um, so for me, I kind of maybe naively went into two people fighting over money, two companies fighting over money. This will be fine. No emotion. Of course, come to find out people are just as emotional about money as they are about anything else, maybe sometimes more. And that even if you're representing a company or a corporation, there's still personalities involved and humans involved. And there's still a lot of <laughs> emotion, but at least I don't have to look at autopsy photos. Like for me, <laughs> like at least there is some line. Um, but I know, I know for, uh, you know, for my dad, I, he cared so much, which you have to do to be good at it. Um, but uh, I think it did a lot of damage to him um, on really a daily basis. And he had a lot of the issues that a lot of, um, sadly, our profession has in terms of like um, alcohol abuse and that type of thing. So I, you know, I guess I had seen the dark side of lawyering already <laughs> before I went to law school. Um, so I was, I was much more drawn to what I thought would be less, less taxing that would take less from me as, as a person. And when you, when you were in private practice, did you find that to be the case? Cause I still think this is pretty taxing. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, so, you know, I was, when I was in private practice, I still did tons of pro bono work, 
And I was drawn to things like doing guardian ad litem work and that type of thing. And gosh darn it, Lenore, if you were trying to avoid emotional stuff, why did you run headlong into it? I just can't avoid it, right? So then I was writing these briefs and you're dealing with these, you know, termination of parental rights or these other, you know, foster care situations or these parents trying to rehabilitate to get back custody of their children. And I was back to reading horrible fact patterns and back to, you know, um, deep into the intergenerational trauma again. So I think for me, I mean, I just need to be stopped. Like someone needs to be like, Lenore, you said you weren't going to do emotional stuff. And then you went right into the emotional stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think people are not as, yeah, I, I was naive. People are not as unemotional about financial stuff as I predicted that they would be. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised not only by, I guess, the feelings that the parties have, um, but that the attorneys representing them have. And there's actually a lot more, um, I'll call it nonsense that goes on. (laughs) And I didn't expect all the anger and all the vitriol and all the animosity. Um, I guess I was expecting that in certain areas of the law, it would be more um, professional, Mm -hmm. but I've also seen unprofessional behavior where it really should be like, listen, guys, we're deciding if you get 10 million or they get 10 million. Like, why are, why is all this other drama happening? I <laughs> think this is, yeah. you know, <laughs> this is, let's, let's just interpret this contract clause. And, you know, why, you know, why is there all this other stuff going on? Game playing and, you know, theatrics. I didn't expect all that. And you would think like that sort of, and it, we, we, I mean, we see it, Robin and I both see it too. You think that that sort of nonsense ends, you know, in grammar school. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Just, Life we, is just junior high just <laughs> eternally. It really is. Everything you needed to know you learned in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I think, and, and no matter at what level you get to, you're like, oh, well, that's because you're in state court. Just wait for federal court where everything is, no, or or just wait until you're dealing with the only the top tier law firms. Then, then it's going to be some classier style of practice or something, you know, but you find it at, at all levels. And um, I really, I really wish our profession were different because I also think all the ugliness pushes people out and it pushes out good people who are like, what on earth? Why are we taking this abuse? Why are we doing this to each other? Why do I want to get insulted? Why do I want to be personally attacked? <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, there, there are people who enjoy the game too much. And so they perpetuated it, but it, it forces other people out of the profession who yeah. would be really good at law, but they're like, I cannot I can't have 10 fights a day about silliness. So they leave. And I mean, and in that, that world too, you were probably one of few female attorneys, you know, at at these, you know, at the table, so to speak. And I feel like as females, we get pushed out even sooner or faster 
because I think we, we handle situations a little bit differently. Like there are, of course, there's many attorneys who are like female attorneys who are like a, a real, like aggressive fighter. But generally speaking, most of the female attorneys I come across, we have a different way of like navigating the, the scenario that I feel like works quite well, but, but it can be, <laughs> but it yeah. can be hard when you have a lot of testosterone in the room it can be uh-huh. hard to influence things in in your way that work I think works so you tend to get kind of pushed to the side yeah I mean it's it's really it I definitely see you know and it's in the silliest things like you'll be in a deposition and you'll feel like I'm in a room with gorillas because everyone's just thumping thumping and we're not getting anything done and it's like aren't we literally here to find out the facts what does this witness know how do they interpret this document? But no, it's all this like, if you don't right now, we're leaving or we told you this amount of time and you've gone over and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to call the judge right now. I love that. I'm instructing him not to answer. There's so much like, I was like, wow, people, I don't have the energy to be this mad all day long about stupid things. (laughs) I love the judge threat because have you ever actually been in a deposition where the the judge has actually gotten on the phone well I just know so many judges who would be so angry at everybody but particularly whoever placed the phone call so right so it's a bit of an empty threat but still there's all this like you know uh you know the the silliness of it and it's like uh this could all be done with a lot less tension a lot less anger uh we don't all have to be on the you know there don't have to be veins popping out of everyone's forehead um but yeah so so that style of practice i don't like (laughs) uh i do think that there are ways to get to solutions without it and they often serve your clients better than all the um well, we had to do this because they did that to us and, you know, all the crazy back and forth motion practice. Well, but they did this, so we had to file this. And then they filed this, so we had to oppose it. And then, you know, and bazillions of dollars later, you're no closer to being done resolving the main controversy, but at least you've had a lot of fights and, it's, you know, you the lawyers have built a lot. So, and I mean, and coming in house, gives a different perspective too, because I then have to turn around and explain that to other people. Like, why did we spend money on this? Right. And, and you don't want to have to go back and you segued it perfectly for me. Thank you. Um, (laughs) You don't want to have to go back to someone and be like, oh, you know, we did this because I mean, opposing counsel, they did this. And so we needed to, you know, show them our strong arm, but did your strong arm like get you any closer to your end goal no you just it's like a pissing match yeah it's like well but we had to because they told us they were going to do this but they did this instead or we asked for 10 documents and they gave us five so (laughs) you know um and as as the in-house counsel, you become that messenger of ridiculousness and you very quickly <laughs> get tired of having tr- to transmit that. And that's uh, where obviously it becomes incumbent on the in-house counsel to then manage the external counsel. Um, but 
you're fighting against this culture which says any fight you can have have it <laughs> you know it's just like if there is if you see weakness file a motion if you feel insulted today file a motion if the guy looked at you funny file a motion right yeah i i like despise that type of practice because it's just not it's not how i practice there has there have been people i've worked for and with that that that's how they they practice so there's been people who worked for me that that's what they like to do and <laughs> I, I i like to solve a lot of things with a phone call you know there's a lot of like yeah. sometimes i'll notice like you know I, i'll notice that two two people working on the cases are kind of like fighting and then i tend to just call you know the supervising attorney and be like what's going on here can we just like and 10 minute phone call you get it all resolved <laughs> without all this like pissing match that goes on <laughs> between people <laughs> yeah. so what um you know you were in private practice for a number of years was it a, a, a like a large law firm or like a medium-sized firm like big law is that what we're talking about yeah i sort of done i've done all of it um i started out at a law firm called uh heller ehrman that doesn't exist anymore but was very old at the time um <laughs> uh, and uh, uh in california and then in new york and then I, um, skipping a little bit, but basically then I went to, ended up at Steptoe in New York. So that I had the big law yeah. experience, um, the big law California experience. And then the, I, I mean, I guess Steptoe is more like the DC variety because we were the New York office. Um, so I've done the big law thing. Uh, and then I moved down here to Raleigh, North Carolina, and then I did the small boutique law firm thing. <laughs> and that's that's when I transitioned to in-house. Um, and unfortunately, I have no advice on how to go in-house because I did not set out to do it. Everyone's always like, and how did you get it? It's like I didn't, I didn't resume drop, I didn't cold call. I just did a good job and I happened to do a good job for one client who then offered me a role. So I have no advice other than do a good job do for other clients. And then one of them might take you. You also, I have no idea how to game it out because you should just be doing a good job for all your clients. <laughs> I can be like, here's how you pick the one client that's <laughs> going to scoop you up. I haven't, I can't tell you how to do that. No. But um, yeah, so I think that's maybe where my path did become almost accidental in terms of I never set out going, well, I want to be an in-house counsel and I, you know, I want to be the client, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, but then, uh, you know, I got an offer I can refuse and, and went in-house with the client. But I mean, that, I think that's a perfect way to get there, you know, cause you just, you, you showed them, you just did what you knew to do, which was good work. And someone recognized it and was like, Hey, we want her. Let's, let's get her. <laughs> And also, I think they probably, they were like, you know, it's probably cheaper if we just hire. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, I think, uh, so I feel like when I, when I give advice on LinkedIn or anywhere else, I feel like I can do it from a place of, I've been inside the big law. I've been inside the machine. I've been inside a firm that fell apart and doesn't exist anymore. I've been inside a firm that was, very well run and is well run today. So I've seen that. 
Um, I have big law horror stories, but I also have awesome big law stories about, um, you know, the, the partners I last worked for at Steptoe and how, you know, I have really good stories from then. So I have the whole perspective. And then I can talk to what's it like to be <laughs> in a little law firm in, in the Southeast. Um, so, and then to go in house. So, yeah. um, so one, one question I have though, um, cause you went to NYU, well-known giant law school, very good reputation. <laughs> and did, you know, and I, I remember when I was in law school too, like all the, all that was talked about in the job, whatever career services department was big law, big law, big law. So did you find like that was really pushed on, you know, the student body as basically you either, you go into big law or you are, you go to the DA's office. Like that's, that was like the messaging or a clerkship. That was kind of the messaging we got like there. And maybe just because smaller firms don't really aren't involved in the recruiting process but when I was going through the whole thing I was like what 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 do we what do the rest of us do (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean so I mean NYU I I think there were kind of two big um big pathways right there was the big big law the big firms the fancy firms uh the New York City firms primarily uh there were some of us who were interested in the California firms um so that was more my my position at the time. And then the other was straight out public service. Um, you know, either you're gonna make serious money or you're gonna make zero. <laughs> like that, those were the two. There wasn't, you're right, there was no path to like, oh, I just wanna hang a shingle or I wanna be part of a small firm, or I wanna know what, you know, I wanna go to a mid-sized firm, or I wanna be in a, you know a regional firm, you know, that type of thing. There was, that's not, it didn't feel like an option either. You wanted to, you know, really um, go work in the community and give back and, you know, live off of ramen, or (laughs) you wanted to go to the super big fancy firm and, you know, um, sell out or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that was kind of the, the two paths. And I knew, um, you know, this, I, I don't want to sound like Scarlett O'Hara or something, but I knew I did not want to be poor again. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not selling out because I never bought in. I never want to, like, it's like I, having had that childhood of you know, oftentimes my dad was either a solo or he was with two or three other partners. That constant, every month, are we going to get paid? Is there money coming in? Uh, the chasing clients down to get paid. He, you know, and the the threats from people who didn't want to pay him and, and all of that. Um, or the people who are like, I don't have any money. Can I give you a turkey or can I just fix your car for, you know, literally that kind of stuff that sounds like, you know, um, you know, it sounds like something out of a movie or something, but it's, it's, um, I didn't want to have that scraping by existence. I couldn't do that. Um, it was stressful as a child. I think in a way, 
I'm always trying to like deconstruct my dad, but I think in a way it was sort of exhilarating for him. That's sort of like, will we make it or not? Like, does, is this check going to clear? This is kind of fun, you know, for him, there was sort of this excitement of, you know, I'm always standing on the edge, but not falling off the cliff. And I was like, I don't want to grow up like that. <laughs> and I don't want to live like that. And I, I can't. So I was like, I'm going to get a job. <laughs> and I had so much debt. I had so much um, undergrad debt, so much law school debt. I was like, I'm paying this stuff off. I'm not messing around. So, um, you know, for me, uh, there was really one path and not, I don't feel like it necessarily came from like a place of greed. Maybe this is all just greed, but it was, I was running from something in that I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, trying to pull money out of people who have no money, <laughs> you know, and I, and I can't, I can't do that existence of, you know, can I pay rent this month? Can, and can I buy food this month? Did you, like, did your dad ever talk to you about that, like, question, like, oh, you know, why are you taking this path over that path? Like, did you ever have a conversation with him as to your, like, why you were choosing a a different path than he he had? No, so I kind of had to hide from him what I was up to. (laughs) Because in addition to being a criminal defense attorney, my parents were, or they're slightly too old to be hippies, but they're sort of of that mindset. Like I didn't want them kind of like, they didn't really know I was working for the man, but I was very definitely working for the man. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, well, why, you know, I'm not sure they're all the way to like anti-capitalist or something, but it was sort of like, why, why do big companies need lawyers? Why, do, why does anyone, why do they need anybody fighting for them? Right. Like fight for the little guy. We were very much a, um, you know, the mentality or philosophy was much more, you know, be the David, don't be the Goliath. And I was like, ha, I've gotten to work for Goliath. Goliath pays better. Like, <laughs> so. Goliath pays really well. <laughs> you have a lot of debt. Um, so, I mean, I think, yeah, I didn't, I, I, we didn't really examine each other's choices. And some of it was because, you know, I, I kind of did hide some of the stuff I was doing for them, uh, from them. Um, but I mean, my dad absolutely loved being a lawyer. Loved it, loved it, loved it. One of those people who had a calling and that calling was a profession. And he absolutely, I remember even as a kid asking, you know, you get those little worksheets in school. And it's like, I have to ask you, if you couldn't have the current job you have now, what would you be? And you know, most people can think of something or at least a dream job. And my dad was like, I'd be a lawyer. I'm like, but dad, dad you're a lawyer. Do you understand the premise of this question? Like, but if you weren't a lawyer, I'd be a lawyer. Oh, okay. But um, dad, <laughs> like, you're supposed to have, you know, but his dream, his, you know, his dream was not major league baseball player. His dream was not, you know, movie star or something. His dream was doing what he did. So, uh, you know, and there are a lot of lawyers like that and they're incredibly lucky people that, you know, being a lawyer is, I mean, it's all they ever wanted (laughs) and and it makes them happy and that's where they get all their fulfillment from. Um, And I do think that happens more often with 
lawyers who pick a more emotional practice area because it is it's fulfilling on all the levels. Um, so, you know, would I say necessarily like, well, if I couldn't be a commercial litigator, I'd just be a commercial litigator. No, like <laughs> I could think of something else to be, right? Um, but, but I chose that because I needed to have the emotional distance from my job. I, but when you decide to have emotional distance from your job, you're also not committing to a calling. So that's, that's kind of the balance there. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be odd though, too, if you were to sit here and be like, I mean, I've all my whole life, I just wanted to be a commercial litigator. (laughs) There are people like that. I think they're lying. I think they're lying. Seriously, honest, that that is what they love and what they love doing. And you will see them in the office every day of the week. They're there nights, weekends, but they love it. And you're like, don't you want to go home to your family? No, I want to do this. Like, but don't you want to have some hobbies? No, I want to do this. Like they absolutely love it. And they'll be 95 years old and they'll still be shuffling the hallways. And you'll be like, didn't we have mandatory retirement? Like, why is this guy still here? And it's just because they, they absolutely, they love it. Um, I mean, I love it, but it's not it doesn't define me. I guess that's a difference, you know, and yeah. it, it sounds like it, def- that, that is all some, th- those people, that's all that they have. Yeah. And it's all, it's not even, it's not even, I, I've, I feel like we have a tendency to look at those people and say, oh, what a tragedy. Their entire life was their job. They are actually happy. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, there's so much push for work-life balance, which I think is great because there's a lot of us who have been craving the life side of that. But at the same time, I always watch out for my friends who I'm like, but they love work. They really love work. They don't want more life. They just want more work. And I know they're, 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 you know, they're rare, but they do exist as people for whom, you know, and I think, you know, for my dad, that was really like, yeah, it was a, his it, thing. It, he yeah, found his, his thing. I mean, it's, so, almost, it's almost as if his job was also his hobby and it's his passion all, all lumped together. And I, I can, I mean, look, like I think being a lawyer is awesome because you're, you get to utilize so much and every day, like, it's not boring. You definitely use your brain. You definitely get to be creative. Like you get to pull on all these different things that I don't think it gets talked about as much to people. Like before you get into the career, like I actually hate when people say like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to tell my kid definitely don't go to law school. I'm like, well, why not? Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, you know, I'm like, I, I like, just because you might not like it, like there's so much you can do with it. And there, and like, when you can so tell the person opinion. does like it, but they're still saying that they're like, I'm a lawyer, but I'm going to tell my kids not to be a lawyer. Why? Why is being a lawyer something special for you, but you're telling everyone else not to be? I don't know. <laughs> it, it drives, yeah, it drives me kind of crazy. I was like, I, I, I like, I don't know, like, whatever. <laughs> But I think there's so many different ways of being a lawyer, which is why I've stayed with it, right? So there's so many women who leave law, um, so many underrepresented 
people who leave law and it just breaks my heart and they're leaving law because law can be very alienating and very hostile especially to women especially to anybody who looks different sounds different moves different thinks different it's it's you know i i feel like i'm not asking people to be lambs to the slaughter like if law is hurting you and it's tearing you apart okay fine leave but there's actually still a lot of ways to be a lawyer, a lot of styles of being a lawyer, a lot of different careers. <laughs> so, um, and now with the whole world of legal operations and legal tech, there's so many different ways to still apply what you know about law and still apply what you learned in law school and still stay within the industry and within the profession. So, but yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I think we need to be encouraging more people to go into law. Honestly, I know they always say there's too many lawyers, but there's not enough of certain kinds of lawyers. Okay. Like, I agree. We've hit the quota on like the bombastic lawyer. We've hit the quota on the argumentative lawyer. We've hit, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are done. We got, we got those people. We're good. Don't tell them to come. But we're missing out on the empathetic lawyer, the creative lawyer, these other types of lawyers, we have not, you know, we do not have enough of those lawyers. We, we have a lot of the wrong kind and not enough of these other kinds of lawyers to, to balance out the profession. So I'm always telling people, go to law school, be a lawyer. <laughs> you think they changed third year to being something more like the doctor's rotations where we got to taste all the different areas of law, you would keep more people in law? Yeah, I mean, so part of my law school experience, well, I did two years straight of clinic, which is, That's I good. did the immigrant rights clinic. Uh, again, Lenore, saying you're not going to do emotional stuff <laughs> and then going right into an incredibly emotional area of law. But I did that for two years. It was great. Um, it was being a lawyer. It was not um, learning how to theoretically think about law through property rights of foxes or some nonsense. Like it was real, actual, practical law. And I, I think that um, if, you know, if more law schools had more clinics and that type of experience, that that, that, that would help. Also, I think just in general, if, if like we were talking about before, if law schools were more open to, there's a lot of different paths. Maybe you'll take the big law job and, and maybe you'll take it now, but maybe you're just going to do that for two years or five years. But let's think about what you could do next after that. And I do think now more companies are open to taking more junior people in-house. And then that can also be presented in law school as another possible option. Um, yeah, I think the law schools need to be doing a better job at, at advertising and talking about other paths um, and, and other opportunities. But the problem with that too is you kind of need to give people give the students and options of where, where to go. Like you need to connect them to people. So that also kind of falls on alumni to be involved and, you know, kind of give some of those opportunities to law students. And like a lot of companies, they don't want to have an intern or small firms. You can't, it's not in your budget to pay for a summer. It, like there's a lot of those financial constraints, but even just to have open discussions and meetings or, or, or you know, forums about other options, because 
again, I didn't like, I had no clue about other options. I, I really didn't <laughs> know. I mean, I knew yeah. there were them. I just didn't know how, what they really were, or how to get there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and it makes sense too in my in-house angle, because you graduate law school, you've never reviewed a contract. You don't know how to read a contract. You don't know how to redline a contract. You're useless. But I think more and more law schools are introducing sort of applied law, like, okay, let's, yeah. let's look at it. I mean, we never saw a contract in contracts class, at least I didn't. We had cases that we read, but we never read the, we never even looked at the contract being discussed in the case, like yeah. just no, no contracts. Um, so I, I think that's a good change. And then also too, I'd still wanna encourage people to go into litigation even if you don't like to argue, which I think is, I mean, even if you're not a combative person, even if you're not pugilistic, even if you like, heaven forbid, even if you don't have a hot temper, I would like you to go into litigation. Like <laughs> it doesn't have to be all the hotheads and um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. I think litigation can be a very useful tool for solving problems. But <laughs> we need more people in litigation who are problem solvers, not just um, people who like to, to fight with each other. And I think sometimes those are the people we encourage to go to law school. Oh, you're very sassy. You talk back a lot. You should go to law school. Oh, you're always fighting. You have an answer for everything. You should go to law school. Again, I think we've hit our quota of know-it-all lawyers. We've hit our quota of, you know, um, you know, people who want to just uh, skirmish constantly. Um, so I think we need to also encourage people to go into litigation, uh, even if they find it distasteful. Well, and with that, though, I mean, I think what is a misconception is to be a good litigator, litigator, it's not necessarily the fight, but it's also listening to your client <laughs> and what their needs are <laughs> yeah. and the solution they're looking for and figuring out how to get there. You don't need to fight with anyone about you. You, you need to actually work with people. <laughs> like maybe we should be looking for the, the, the kids who are very good at collaborating mm -hmm. and listening. <laughs> <laughs> like these Group are the projects <laughs> <laughs> like yeah these things work I mean like how I mean yeah sure like there are trial you know you, lawyer going on trial just one, one lawyer against another lawyer go to trial but that's probably a smaller trial think about it a, a large complex trial is a whole team of people that you need to work together sure you might need a leader to run run that team but you need to collaborate <laughs> and work together as a team. It's not just a one-man show or one-woman show. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think too many, <laughs> too many cases get very bogged down in discovery and it's, you end up in these ridiculous fights of, but I gave you 20 search terms and you only searched 15. So a bazillion dollars later, <laughs> you know, where are we? And okay, you know, uh, you know, how many more emails did that really yield? Like, I, I feel like there's, um, I don't know, we've, we've somehow turned litigation just into never ending discovery. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And again, you have to ask, what is the end game? Like, what is the point of getting all, is it going to get us somewhere? Or are we just trying to like 
just keep churning and I'm trying to un- try to find that you know smoking gun that you're never going to find right yeah I mean at some point you know are you know it's like (laughs) you know and I have the perspective because I am so so very ancient that I do remember when cases were sort of you know they could fit in a few banker boxes this is our production that this is their production okay um and now it's, you know, uh, so much data. And when you get down to it, the hot documents are that same little set of banker boxes you had 20 years ago, only now at least you've looked at, you know, a million other irrelevant emails. Good, <laughs> great. That did us all a world of good, right? <laughs> so I'm kind of cynical. I love discovery. I love litigation kind of cynical about some of the directions it's taken in terms of just being a way to waste time and bill money yeah and and yeah and I think in some way too it's used a little bit of gamemanship probably you might see it more with big big companies trying to find dig up find out more information about maybe competitors or other companies and you know utilize Mm -hmm. that information trial secrets (laughs) Yeah, which is just not the point. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> not really. But I, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I don't know. You have so many uh, people who call themselves litigators and they have never been to trial. Um, you know, what they have done is taken or attended hundreds if not thousands of depositions (laughs) and they've done the document review and and that type of thing and and that's all valuable work but but in the end um you know when you see that that in the end so many cases simply settle and the settlement comes out of exactly what you were saying earlier a conversation a discussion between finally the two right people get in a room in the right mindset and they just work it out. Yeah. Yes. Um, so one thing I wanted to make sure we, we touched on though today is you, you and I talked about that. I think it was over the summer that you, you suffered a stroke, yes. um, <laughs> Oh but, it's, but you're very passionate about like, you know, spreading information ab- about it and like advocating about you about your experience um so I didn't want to f- go through this whole thing and not, not talk about <laughs> it like we talked all this boring lawyer stuff okay so um <laughs> okay not not in the int- no so in at the end of May um I had a stroke I was uh I'm 46 now I was 45 that's actually pretty young to have a stroke although um since having it I've heard of a lot of other people who had strokes at a younger age you can even have pediatric strokes. So, I mean, anyone can have a stroke. But yes, I've become very vocal about talking about my stroke because I don't think uh, younger people are watching out for one or would even recognize their friend or family member having one. Um, I also think a lot of women don't think about themselves as having strokes. And of course, it's like every other area in women's healthcare it's been less studied, the symptoms are less well known, it can present slightly differently than it does in a man, I mean, all the usual (laughs) problems. And 
Um, there are a lot of triggers that are pretty unique to the female experience, such as pregnancy, menopause, birth control pills. There are factors that we have as women that that uh, you know maybe not everyone's watching out for. But um, yeah, I'm very <laughs> I'm very vocal about it because it uh, one in five women will have a stroke. It's the number three killer of women. Um, and it's also a major cause of disability. Um, it's very definitely one of those experiences. Not only could you one day be alive, one minute be alive and the next day dead, it's also one of the ways that people become disabled. So yeah. one minute you're a totally able everything and the next second you're disabled. Um, so, I mean, uh, I was very fortunate that I really had no deficits. I had an excellent recovery, um, but I also did a lot of things super wrong. I didn't realize I was having a stroke. I didn't get help right away. I spent a lot of hours not at the hospital. <laughs> so I wanna encourage people to get to the hospital, to get to 911, to, um, you know, get help um, because they always say uh, time lost is brain lost. <laughs> so um, you, you want to get help. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, to be gendered about it, I think sometimes women ignore weird stuff going on with their bodies because they're like, whatever, there's always something weird going on with my body. So I'm just not like, I don't have time for this today. <laughs> um, I'm very guilty of that. <laughs> so, yeah. And then we also kind of stink at self-care, right? About getting to the doctor and checking on ourselves and, and taking care of ourselves and, and, and uh, putting ourselves first. But yeah, so I, I want to make sure that people know that it can happen um, and know what to do. And also, as always, to create more compassion for someone who has been through it. Um, you know, a lot of people after a stroke, their mobility is impacted or their speech is impacted. Uh, and even if someone ha doesn't have those kind of very obvious deficits, it's an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Even when someone comes out of a stroke and they're just fine, I'm like, okay, take it easy on yourself. <laughs> you've just had, you've just had a, you know, uh, an experience you, you could have died you could have had severe brain injury let's just you know uh stop and reflect um so uh yeah I mean that's that's kind of my <laughs> my mission now <laughs> post-stroke so what were some of the symptoms you were experiencing that you didn't at the time like at the time you may not have put together that some some you know major medical emergency was occurring <laughs> so so right during the stroke it should have been kind of obvious I had the so when it started I couldn't move my entire right side so I just coped I just dragged my right side that's not normal um and you know I had the face drooping and all of that but um you know some of the big obvious symptoms uh but leading up to it I was having different uh, tingling or numbness in parts of my body, just ignoring it, whatever. Um, I was having little moments of slight confusion, 
sort of in the vein of like, is that a memory or is that a dream I had or is that something that's happening right now? Little moments of like kind of connected to that high emotion of like, oh, I feel confused. All right, ignoring that. Um, I'm someone who gets migraines and migraines with aura. So I already have weird stuff happening with me. Unfortunately, this put me in the habit of ignoring weird stuff. Oh, I can't feel my hand, whatever. Like, you know, this things that should bother me didn't bother me, right? Leading up to my stroke. And then when I had my stroke, I, I woke up, I was like, well, I feel weird. And then I went back to bed and then I woke up again. And like I said, the whole right side was, was down. And I was like, well, this is weird. I'm gonna make some coffee and have some cereal. So that's what I did. I mean, I just, I was like, I'll just use my left side. I mean, it's just. Um, that is yeah. such a typical female response though. Like, did. because you're probably like, I have shit to do. Like, yes. I, like I don't have time for this. We're just going to use this other hand and we're yeah. just going to. Plow along. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, so I, I, and I am grateful that I have had a good recovery. I've talked. Anytime I talk about stroke, someone tells me about a friend or a family member or a neighbor or somebody they know who had a stroke at 40, 30, 20, and now, you know, can't do basic major life activities, cannot necessarily hold a job, are not the person they used to be, maybe even their personality has changed, or the way they relate to their family or their um, spouse or partner has changed. So I, I'm very grateful that I haven't had uh, those kind of ramifications from it. But it's also, it's tough to talk about it as a lawyer, right? Because what is, what is my moneymaker? Not this, but up here, my brain. So I'm telling people, I had a brain injury. I'm brain injured. <laughs> Luckily, I had an incredibly huge brain. So I could just burn <laughs> off parts of it. Um, I'm totally fine. Um, but I mean, it is it is kind of vulnerable to tell people that, especially sure. as a leader, that like, oh yeah. So the organ that matters most, I did a thing to and got it a little damaged, but it'll be all right. Um, I also think, you know, as a lawyer, it's scary to think I could have lost my ability to speak. Mm -hmm. I speak all day long. Like at the end of every day, I, you know, sound like I've been at a rock concert. I just, I do so much talking and to lose that ability or, uh, you know, we've seen so many people lately who have had strokes and everyone is so critical of how they talk and everyone assumes that connects directly to what's happening mentally and intellectually. Um, so, you know, that's, that's frightening too, to be like, yeah. <laughs> I could not be able to talk right now, or I could be talking in such a way that you would think I was um, intellectually challenged, which yeah. that's also incompatible with being a lawyer. Um, so, um, but uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, it's given me so much insight into, there are lawyers who stutter, there are lawyers who speak differently and their challenges getting accepted and trusted in the legal world, which as we talked about, can be a, a cruel place, a cruel, <laughs> dark place. Yeah. Well, and you have the benefit of already being very well established and not having you know, any, any outward 
expressions that would make have someone like judge you in that way but that's not the case for everybody um so it's and i'm sure even after coming back after you know going through your recovery you've probably felt like you needed to prove yourself a little bit that you're <laughs> i'm okay yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Gosh. Um, and when people hear you've had a stroke and then they see you or talk to you for the first time, you can tell they are scared for the first 30 seconds. They don't know what you're going to do. They don't know how you're going to look, how you're going to move, how you're going to talk. Is she still her? Um, and then a few minutes in, most people will confess they're like, I'm so glad you're still you, you're laughing, you're happy, you seem like yourself. I never would have known if you didn't tell me, I didn't, wouldn't have known you had a stroke. And they're just relieved. And even that is a weird experience, right? To have someone being, uh, someone be relieved that you're not disabled. I, this is very, it messes with your head, right? But there, that does wash over them. You see them being like, oh, okay, she's still Eleanor. Okay, we're still good. And then after time, people entirely forget that I had a stroke. Um, but that's gotta be yeah. hard too, because it, it's, I mean, it, it hasn't left you. Like you, I'm sure you don't go a day that you don't think about it. Yeah, I mean, there are times when, when I don't, which is good, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, so one of the things, one of the classic symptoms is balance issues. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a long time to trust my balance again. So yes, I would be thinking about it and I would be, uh, I do a lot of dances exercise and I found myself, caught myself thinking of one leg as the bad leg and one leg as the good leg. They're both exactly the same. <laughs> so I need to stop thinking that way. But for a long time, it was like, oh, I'm standing on my right leg. Is this going to all be okay? Yes, it's fine. My right leg is fine. I mean, in a way it's kind of, so yeah, you don't want your right side to get, I'm, I'm right-handed. Uh, you don't want to lose your right side of your body. Um, the stroke is also in the verbal part of my brain. As a lawyer, you don't want to lose that either. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, all right, fine. It hit me where I'm strongest. Take out some verbal. I had tons of verbal. Took out some <laughs> of the right side. I'm good on the right side already. Um, but, you know, and maybe that helped with my recovery. Um, but yeah, but people, people do forget. And I would have, it's interesting. I would have the choice to pretend it never happened. Right. That's the whole thing with invisible disabilities. Right. I could just not tell anyone. Right. And right. I could just keep quiet about it. And everyone eventually, even though I put it on LinkedIn, everyone would eventually forget that I ever had a stroke. Um, and so I could pretend I didn't. Um, but that, that doesn't feel very authentic. It doesn't feel very honest and it doesn't feel very helpful. I feel like I can help people by saying yeah. I had a stroke. Um, I've gotten so many messages from people who also had strokes, um, particularly people in their thirties and forties, and they feel so alone because, um, everyone thinks of someone who had a stroke as like someone in an assisted living facility or something. They think of like their great, great grandmother who had one and then never talked again. Um, and if you Google things about stroke, it seems very bleak. <laughs> so I like to be able to say, okay, you're going to be okay. Regardless, you know, maybe you didn't have the exact same recovery I did, but I'm doing this too and I'm okay and you're going to be okay and we can do this. 
um, it, you know, because otherwise, if you're just playing on the internet, most of the research about stroke and post-stroke recovery deals with people who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. That is not who you should be comparing yourself to if you're 45 years old and you know yeah. you want to understand what recovery could look like. Well, I'm I'm so glad you're using it to advocate and talk about it and make it a more comfortable situation for other people to talk about who who feel alone and can feel a little less alone. Um, so if you don't pat yourself on the back, you should. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, yeah, I do feel some responsibility, you know, I'm not, not super heavily spiritual, but it kind of feels like, you know, when I'm looking for the point of it, like, what was the point of me having a stroke? <laughs> um, you know, not everything needs to have a point, but maybe this is the point that I can then yeah, talk about, talk about it. Um, we're, you know, sure. research suggests that we're going to see more and more strokes in younger people. Uh, some of that has to do with health choices, lifestyle choices, all the lovely sedentary, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, working from home. Uh, you know, so um, more and more people are going to have the risk factors health-wise that lead to stroke. So, um, you know, starting the conversation now. <laughs> and now that I've told you about it, you are going to start hearing more about it, or you're going to realize, wait, I already know someone like that. I already know, I know uh, someone who had a stroke at an early age. But also I'll be more attuned to you know any any symptoms you know that like like maybe that I would have just ignored or passed off kind of like how, how you did being like maybe I should be paying more attention to this <laughs> yeah no definitely I mean I think because women go through so much particularly with our periods and everything else we get so used to our bodies being weird and funky and doing you know conspiring against us at the wrong times. And we, you know, uh, you know, and especially people who have migraines or anything like that, we get used to, we get used to pain. Mm -hmm. We get used to um, not feeling right, but keep on going. And um, I think it's hard to just turn yourself inward and say, but wait a minute, that's really weird. Like, <laughs> I should be able to feel all my fingers. This is this, maybe this is because, you know, when I, one of the other things too, is that I found out that I actually had, uh, and I had my whole life, a little hole in my heart. And that's how the clot traveled. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had no idea. And that was just sort of silently waiting for some clot. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, I think um, we feel like we know our bodies, but we don't know our bodies. Um, so, you know, I thought of myself as an incredibly healthy person and I'm a vegetarian and I don't drink and I don't smoke and I'm practically perfect. But <laughs> as it turns out, I, you know, I was totally defective. I had this hole and, you know. We got totally defective. You have a well, <laughs> we all have we all have defects. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
well, we are, we are pretty much out of time, but I didn't yes, want to, right. sign. No, I think we need to do like a part two. I, I told you when I was on the phone with you, I'm like, I have so much to talk to you about because <laughs> I just find you fascinating and engaging. Um, but before we, we sign off, you know, knowing everything that you know now, which I think, you know, way more than the average person about life, <laughs> um, what advice would you give like your younger self with the knowledge that you know about yourself and the business and being a lawyer and everything? What advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a tough one. Other than like drink more water, (laughs) wear more sunscreen, all the usual. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think understanding how many people are actually faking it and how much confidence that other people have. Um, There's a lot of people who seem like they know everything are making it up and it doesn't bother them. Um, Whereas I think for a lot of us, we're like, well, if I were making things up, that would bother me. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think... um, not that you should fake it till you make it, but just have more confidence that you are just as good as everybody else and that um, they aren't bothered by not knowing things. They still do them. Yeah. I, I, I think that's really, really good. I always try to tell like my, my kids that sort of stuff. Like, you know, just right. because Jane seems like Jane knows everything. <laughs> doesn't mean it they <laughs> think they have it all under control I mean I have to tell myself that all the time too you, you can't help it no you can't well and then it's good to learn that now because then someday when you're in the work world and you're like why has Jane gotten promoted for the third time she doesn't know any more than I do well she goes around saying she knows all of it yeah and acts like, <laughs> it. like she knows all of it um yeah I mean I think um uh, for those of us that are kind of waiting for meritocracy to just fall on our heads (laughs) we have to be more proactive I think you know for those of us who are kind of like the very good elementary school students who are like well I got all A's so I'll get all the awards at the end of the year uh and then you hit the real world and it's like oh it's not like that at all (laughs) you know um you know, yeah, someone yeah. doesn't just open up your file and say, oh, you've done a great job. So you get the gold star. Um, no. <laughs> well, Lenore, thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit down with, with Robin and I and sharing so much, so, so much about yourself. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's hard to do that. You know, it's pretty vulnerable to put yourself out there. And I appreciate you you know, doing it and doing it so candidly and then with a, you know, with a sense of humor as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, It was great talking to you today. (laughs) Good talking to you both. Thank you. And for all our listeners out there, of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense Never Rests on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube at TDNR Podcast.